Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. And after the Australian Parliament was hacked, we're going high tech and very digital today on The Switzer Show. My first guest is David Curtin, the CEO of First Wave Tech. And I want to know how vulnerable my business and life is because of my iPhone, my Mac, and those so-and-sos out there who want to hack me. Next, we'll catch up with the founder of Crowd Media, which is a business designed to use the internet to build up your fame and brand. The man in question is Dominic Carosa. And then later in the program, Paul Ricard, my colleague, will join me and we'll answer your questions. But with any any further ado, let's welcome David Curtin, CEO of First Wave Tech, to the Switzer Show. David, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Nice to be with you today. Yes, same here, mate. No, I've got to say, in preparing some questions for you today, I was actually quite staggered to realise how, how vulnerable we all are nowadays, and it's underlined by the fact that even the Australian Parliament can't protect itself. Yes, that's right, Peter. Um, you know, what we are seeing is the, the number of um, uh, attacks globally is, is increasing. Um, the size of the uh, the market that um, First Wave is uh, is targeting continues to grow. Um, we're specifically looking to protect uh, organisations in the cloud um, uh, environment, and um, uh, we see particularly in that environment that we know that email continues to be the number one vulnerability for a number of organisations and a number of the black hat um, uh, people who are out there trying to take advantage of organisations still get access through. Uh, simple um, uh, applications that we use every day like email. Mm. So I I guess my first question to you, and I want to follow up some of the things you mentioned then, but if a a government can't stop hackers, what hope do we have? Well, I think that um, uh, uh, with any sort of environment, um, you know, Peter, whether it's your your technical environment or even your physical security environment, it requires a – a culture and a focus uh, in the first instance. So I think um, what we can do is, is really work hard on the culture that we've got within the organisations and know that there are uh, individuals out there that are looking to take advantage of our, our data. We know that now with the internet that a lot of our information is being shared uh, being shared publicly. So um, I think the smartest thing that you can do is actually um, increase your awareness um, and focus on um, culturally what you need to do across the organisation and um, Awareness is, is, is important, um, and that's one of the things that we've been trying to focus on with uh, the offerings that we take into, um, into organisations that um, uh, you can protect yourself, um, uh, but it's very difficult to do it perfectly because there are a number of sophisticated uh, attackers out there. Um, but nonetheless, my first recommendation would be for all organisations to focus on their culture and awareness, and uh, that can go a long way to protecting uh, your organisation. Okay, so talk us through, um, you know, I've, I've got a business, I've got around 50 employees, um, you know, I don't know what, what they're getting up to on a daily basis, I figure mm-hmm. we've got, you know, some kind of virus protections and all that sort of stuff. 
in the organization. But it seems to me you're saying everybody in the organization has to be singing from the same hymn book when it comes to the things you should do and the things you shouldn't do. Absolutely, Peter. Uh, it's one of the things that um, even within our own company where we've got uh, you know, people who are technically very strong in this area, um, you know, we focus on the culture. We're very aware of uh, what's coming in and out of our environment. We're constantly monitoring our external perimeter, um, particularly when it comes to uh, easy access points with email. And it's really basic things like don't click on anything um, uh, uh, that you don't know where it's coming from. Be very aware if um, if uh, you get phone calls from individuals be purporting to be uh, uh, from your systems administration area or from your service provider asking you for your password. You can't share that information um, uh, with anyone. Um, so it's really basic things like that, 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 that awareness, talking about it. You know, every week we, we talk about what we're seeing come through because we have a number of um, uh, uh, customers that are using the First Wave platform and uh, we're aware of um, uh, a number of uh, uh, different um, uh, approaches that black hat type individuals are using to trying to get into organisations. So we do make it a part of our conversation. Uh, we are aware of it and um, you know, we're really religious in terms of reporting spam, uh, getting that into the database because one of the the really valuable things of the technology that um, uh, that we're looking to uh, take to um, uh, to customers and to organisations is to access a global network. Um, and um, for a small company, one of the things that you can do is, is actually choose um, security appliances that have a, a global footprint because those attacks could be coming anywhere in the world. And um, uh, the more uh, those attacks get reported, the faster they are integrated into the applications that you're using and the more likely you are to be protected. Mm. So when you say, you know, you, you emphasise products that have a, did you say a global footprint? Yeah, so if you take... Go sorry, on. Peter. Go on. I was going to say, yeah, if you take uh, our, our email offering, for example, we, um, uh, we effectively add some value around um, a Cisco uh, email uh, service right. and Cisco is one of the biggest companies globally spending huge amounts of money on, um, on cyber security. So by accessing into that um, uh, application, effectively you get access to their, their global network. Um, yeah, and they have um, machine learning, they have artificial intelligence, they have people working 24 by seven monitoring what's going on around the, around the world. So particularly for small companies, and that's where we're really targeting, you know, it's very difficult because you don't have the budget uh, you don't have the time or the energy to focus on, um, on on this cyberspace because you're trying to keep up with your own business. And by leveraging uh, applications uh, on the on the platform that uh, First Wave has, you get access to effectively a global community um, who is uh, who is monitoring and being vigilant around uh, people who are trying to get into your organisation and steal your your confidential information or even blackmail you um, uh, to receive money to be able to unlock access to your data. Mm. So. First Wave's um, platform, what, what does it actually do for, for me, a business owner? Yeah, so what, we, um, uh, what we're doing, Peter, with uh, the, our orchestration platform is we're targeting um, uh, service provider customers or managed security service providers. So you know, a service provider might be an organisation like a telecommunications company. So basically what you're able to do is, is um, uh, you can take our, our offering as a service. So we offer uh, a monthly based subscription and you can basically apply 
um, uh, uh, for an email or a web or a firewall-based um, security service, um, depending on what type of um, security application you're looking for for your environment. You can effectively purchase that on a monthly basis and through our, our customers, um, which are large telcos and managed security service providers, um, you can bundle it with um, other services and products. And ideally what we're trying to do is automate it and make it simple such that uh, you don't need to have a sophisticated IT department, but by accessing um, uh, the security solution through our service platform, you come with a pre-configured set of policies and protections in place to uh, secure your business. Okay. And so... A part of the process, you've made the point, is one is you need a platform like the one you've obviously developed to assist mm. business. But who does the education piece for all your employees? Um, the opportunity there is uh, we, we um, Peter, we're targeting uh, the larger organisations. So we're a leverage model at the moment. We mm. don't have a direct-to-customer uh, uh, offer. Uh, out through uh, through first wave, so um, uh, there is the opportunity for the managed security service provider. So in that instance, you know, more recently we've signed uh, relationships with um, uh, a number of uh, large organisations such as NTT Data and um, and uh, and also with Schult, uh, who's um, a reseller in 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 Africa and and the Middle East and Europe. And so the opportunity there for you as a business is you can effectively um, access into that managed security service provider and get a whole bundle of offerings, including the offerings that, that we provide. Uh, and they also provide additional services such as consulting services um, as security specialists in that space that can help you with uh, the cultural changes that you need to um, uh, deploy into your uh, organisation. David, this is something that always confuses me as a normal human being. And and uh, I, I, I consider you not to be a normal human being because you're you're across all this cyber insecurity that we tend to ignore. How come in the in the internet the bad guys can go undetected? You know, like we've we've seen movies for for our entire life that the CIA and the FBI can find anybody anywhere, but somehow the internet is confounding all the security services of the world. How come? Well, I think it's uh, uh, if you go back to its origins, uh, uh, Peter. Uh, you know, essentially, the the internet started out as as an open uh, as an open system, um, and uh, and while it's given us you know great leaps and strides in terms of uh, um, being able to share information, um, large amounts of information, relatively uh, time efficiently and effectively, and it's brought a, a huge amount of utility through. Uh, through devices, that information still has to travel over those networks and still has to be able to transferred in and out of environments. And just the same as uh, uh, your house or your home needs a, a gate or a front door to be able to to protect it, um, you know, essentially you need to be able to secure the access points in and out of your um, out of your uh, out of your IT uh, infrastructure. So that's the the primary uh, reason is is that the boundaries that used to exist. Um, in private networks have been reducing. We're seeing businesses um, taking advantage of cloud-based applications because essentially they can bring scale and they can reduce unit costs and bring efficiencies in uh, in organisations. But with that um, means that you've got to secure your perimeter um, very, very um, uh, securely. And still, uh, just like in your home, sometimes you know you might go out and leave the front door unlocked and 
and not remember, um, uh, individuals within organisations can do the same thing. And there are uh, black hats out there that, that look to prey on those vulnerabilities. And rather than physically coming into your home, they come into your, your, your infrastructure and your data environment and they look to use that data um, to uh, effectively um, generate their own business models, which is to basically uh, take that off you and, and try and secure it via ransom or uh, uh, embarrassment, um, uh, which can impact the company and the company's brand. So in a sense then, because what, what I interpret as your answer is, it's just mm. in the too hard basket uh, and I suspect there's never going to be a real solution. So it becomes the gift that keeps on giving for a, a cyber security firm like yours. Well, we did see that the the market is is growing, you know, really significantly, Peter. And uh, uh, you know, with uh, the emergence of new technologies like the internet, and and you know, as we start to see cloud adoption, and we're moving to sort of multi-cloud adoption now, uh, I don't think that tide is, is ever uh, is ever going to be um, uh, to be changed. And uh, nonetheless, um, what it means is is that that the individuals just need to be educated. Um, around where the vulnerabilities are and then how do we actually protect ourselves against the, uh, the vulnerabilities. So um, it does create great opportunity. Um, you know, we're excited. We think this is a, a really good um, uh, market to be, uh, to be in. You know, we're really passionate about trying to simplify this cyber for uh, all organisations so that all organisations get access to enterprise-grade um, cyber security. And, yeah, we're really excited about, from a company point of view and from an investor point of view, about the opportunities that presents and the way that we can help both our uh, our service provider and their end customers to secure their um, their work environments. Well, David, I'm very happy for you. I'm very unhappy for me because it implies that I'm going to be paying more for security, but uh, so, so be it. That's the way the world is. Um, good luck with it and thanks for joining us on the program. Great. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much for uh, the conversation today. Excellent. David Curtin, CEO of First Wave Tech. Coming back in a moment after this little ad. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. I remember whenever we talk about home loan interest rates, we are talking about a headline rate, 3.89%, and our comparison rate is exactly the same because we don't pile on extra fees, which a lot of lenders do. So always remember, when you're checking out your home loan interest rate, make sure you know what the comparison rate of interest is as well. Now, my next guest is Dominic Carosa, who's a founder of Crowd Media. This is a business that's designed to use the, you know, I guess, challenging world of the internet to build up the fame and brand of individuals and businesses. Dominic Carosa, thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, thanks for having me again, Peter. Now, Dominic, I've known you for years. You've always been on the cutting edge of the internet and all its, its capabilities and, and whatever. But Crowd Media... Tell us exactly what this business does. Yeah, so Crowd Media is listed uh, on the ASX, uh, ASX code CM and the number eight. Uh, we're a, a digital influencer and social media marketing business. 
uh, we've been uh, involved in this space for well over five years. And one of the reasons that we've moved uh, more and more into these um, influencer and social media space is um, the millennial market is now larger than the baby boomer market. Mm. And as we know, millennials these days, are, they're no longer watching traditional television. Uh, they're really no longer, um, you know, interacting with uh, with traditional media in, in the way that they used to. And these days it's, you know, it's the internet, it's social media, um, YouTube and, and other platforms and podcasts like this. Mm. This is really the new way that millennials are now interacting with media. And so we've had demand from a number of advertisers for us to help them in leveraging this new technology as a way of reaching their audience. Yeah. And I can remember many years ago, you were the first to describe what naked advertising was. And I'm sure there's still people listening who aren't quite sure. But it seems to me that I don't want you to define naked advertising for people who don't understand, but also it seems that what you're doing is like the logical extension of that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, what, what we've found uh, these days is, you know, specifically, and it's not just the millennial market, um, but, and it's, you know, the Gen Zs, the Gen Ys uh, these days, you know, because traditional media has been on the decline and increasingly... Um, a lot more people have got what is called um, ad blockers installed. They're not seeing the traditional adverts, the banner adverts that you'd normally see on a website. Mm. And, and so one of the only ways in order to get the marketing messages across for brands is to use digital influencers. And maybe I can sort of give a bit of insight with regards to, you know, what is a digital influencer and mm. how do they work and then how do they actually monetize? So, um, I'm, I'm sure your, your listeners out there have heard of um, the term YouTubers, Instagrammers. And so these are, are people online who have basically built an audience around one of their favourite topics. And it could be um, you know, into travel, uh, they could be into fitness. Uh, and in effect, what they've done is they've built a number of followers on YouTube or on Instagram. And you know, some of the influencers that we've, we've worked with have got you know, their followers are in the millions and millions. In fact, they've got more reach than a lot of Australian TV channels mm. um, for, 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 for some of the programs, obviously on a, on a global basis. And so what we're finding you know, with the advent of ad blockers um, and the millennials no longer watching television is the only way and one of the best ways of getting marketing messages out there these days is through digital influencers. And in effect, it's a it's in effect a, a pay-to-post type model, mm. uh, and it's a bit like product positioning in, um, in on TV. And you only need to look at some of the or watch some of the the James Bond adverts where you've got you know the Aston Martin rolling up, and obviously Aston Martin paid to have their car in there, or or Heineken is basically drunk in a number of uh, uh, movies. Obviously mm. Heineken has paid for that, so it's that kind of, of model. Uh, and and so this is really the, the new model around digital influencers. Um, and ultimately what we're seeing is it it's gets cut through for the advertisers and more importantly, it's great in terms of building brands and ultimately driving sales for, for these brands. Who, who would be a major influencer in Australia, Dominic? Uh, really good question. I mean, we work with our, our core focus around crowd media. We're mainly <clears throat> European-based. Mm. 
so I'd say 98% of all of our revenue is derived out of Europe. Um, and so I don't have a, a, an Australian influencer just off the top of my head. I, I will be able to come back to you. Hmm. Um, but what we found is um, you know, we, we are listed here in Australia, but we find um, most of the business and the opportunity for us is in the European market. And you know, just to sort of give you some insight, we've worked with you know, large brands such as L'Oreal, Nestle, Expedia, um, the fintech market or the neobanks, um, unlike Australia, which is just now starting to, to come up, um, has been uh, you know, very popular, like there's N26 and Bunk, uh, which are two um, neobanks mm. in the European market. So we've been working very closely with them and their core strategies around A, brand building and B, customer acquisition. Mm. Uh, and we've just signed a, a major European uh, airline as well with what we call an always-on campaign. And, and, and the, uh, go on, go on. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and what I was going to say, one of the things that's actually starting to change uh, out there uh, as well, um, and a couple of years ago, Instagram has changed their algorithms. And you may say, well, what does that actually mean? So mm. back, let's say in the olden days, and I'll say olden days were two years ago, <laughs> yeah, when right. influencer, yeah, it's, it's quite uh, funny how, uh, how we sort of operate in this internet world where yeah. uh, you know, I think it used to be you know, one normal year was seven seven years, or yeah. one internet year is seven years, and I think that's actually speeding up um, these days. But um, what's starting to happen is these major brands are now starting to embark on what we call always-on campaigns. And what that basically means is they'll select a number of influencers who ultimately will, over a period of 12 months, post about this particular brand and the experience that they're having with them. Mm. And so they, they're starting to become more what we call brand ambassadors for those brands, as opposed to just doing a single post on a single day, which can get lost with all the media and and, uh, and the noise out there in this digital world. Mm. And and so that's really an area that we see of growth in the marketplace. And so a lot of these brands will then find the appropriate influencers and then lock them in for a period of 12 months. Mm. And the reason we love that is, it's, in effect, it creates a bit of a subscription or a, an annuity-based revenue stream for us. Yeah. And it seems to me, Dominic, that Kim Kardashian is probably the, the world's most well-known influencer. I don't know if she's the most effective, but she certainly is very well-known. And and whatever she says and she likes, a lot of people get to think about it and at least even possibly buy. Yeah, I, she's undoubtedly a, a very well-known influencer. And interestingly, we we sort of break down. There are those, you know, the, the mega or macro influencers like the Kim Kardashians. And they've certainly got a place in the market. Um, but what we find in terms of if we've got brands that are specifically looking at what we call our you know, return on investment, mm. and what we find is the micro-influencers actually perform better. Uh, and you know, this is partly to do with the uh, algorithms at, uh, at Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, uh, but it's also around the audience engagement. And so if someone like Kim will post, she may only have 1% or 2% engagement. And what I mean by engagement is people will be liking or commenting on mm. a particular post. Right. While if you go to a, a micro influencer, and when I say micro, I'm talking someone who's got anywhere from you know 10,000 followers to a half a million followers, mm. um, what we find is the engagement on the smaller influencers is actually much greater. You may have 10 to 20% engagement. 
So ultimately, from a brain perspective, the ROI can actually be much greater with the smaller influences. However, having said that, and that's part of the reason that the big brains work uh, with us, mm. is it, it takes a lot of work to, in effect, negotiate and do deals with 50 influencers, which may give you the reach of the Kim Kardashian, but at the end of the day, it will cost a fraction of the price. And so, you know, that's mm. really an example of how we're, um, you know, working with these large brands and how this market is, is constantly evolving. Yeah, in, in many ways, it's kind of like the, the digital extension of what's been tried by PR firms for a long time. Like I know on the weekend when I was in Melbourne, I read um, in, in the Herald Sun that then there was like a comparison between um, uh, Shane Warne and um, uh, Sam Newman uh, on the idea that they might become like Kramer and Seinfeld from the Seinfeld episode because they were both thinking about buying mm-hmm. an apartment in the St. Moritz development by Tim Gurner. Now, I, I will bet you any money that you like that Tim was the one, or his PR firm was the one who actually gave that to a journalist who thought, this is a great story, we'll run with it. But Sam and Shane Warne are influencers in their own right, particularly in a place like Melbourne. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, and uh, and so there's definitely, and, and I classify you know both of them as being you know macro influencers or you know very well known um, you know celebrities, mm. and that's undoubtedly one one part of the market. But if I look at where the actual dollars are being spent, um, they're actually in influencers that you may not have even heard of before. Yep. It won't be a, a Shane Warner esque style style name or a Kim Kardashian. Um, so we're finding the money is actually moving more and more towards these. And it could be, you know, the girl down the street who's, uh, who's into fitness, who's got, you know, half a million followers on, on Instagram, who, you know, on a daily basis will post about her fitness routines and, and, and you know, an insight into how she eats. Mm. And it's those kinds of influences that we're actually finding big brands are, are quite attracted to is because they're, in a way, you know, virgin territory. They haven't really been uh, exposed or, or or used as much as some of the larger influences, and so ultimately, their audiences are more receptive to this kind of subtle advertising as compared to the big big guys out there. Mm. So, Dominic, have you come in a, become, in a sense, a new age advertising business? Yeah. So, so we, we've definitely moved and migrated from a, a traditional sort of mobile uh, entertainment company to a um, marketing and, and media company in the influencer and social media space. And it's really leveraging the last 10 years of, of work and experience uh, in effect using influencers and social media marketing to market our own products. And increasingly over the last 18 months, we've now had demand from external brands to take the, the 10 years of knowledge and apply that to um, to, to their brands. and. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our core focus is is Europe, mm. uh, and and one of our sort of competitive advantages is because we're we're already operating across thirty European countries. Um, you know, if you walk into our office in Amsterdam, you know there's about seventy eighty people in the office, and we've got thirty different nationalities and and languages just physically sitting in the office. Mm. And so, you know, one of the value adds to to the brands, particularly in Europe, is they can come to us. And we can, in effect, in effect, run a pan-European campaign for them um, in the one shot, as opposed to them having to go across 30 different countries 
um, negotiating and dealing with influencers. So that's really one of our key competitive advantages in terms of attracting these larger uh, brands uh, to us. Okay, well, here's my last and most logical question. Have you used your own business to influence people to come to your business to give you business? Yeah, so we've been using social media marketing and digital influencers to promote our own mobile products that yeah. we've actually been creating. And and that's really what I call, you know, leveraging influencers on a B2C basis to drive retail sales. And, you know, I, I think last half we did, uh, you know, well over $2 million of revenue just in our mobile business. Mm. And most of the marketing was around social media marketing and, and digital influencers. Um, from a B2B perspective, I us going out to third-party brands, um, digital influencer marketing is, I'd say, less effective because it's more around B2C as opposed to a B2B model. Yeah. Um, but so, in effect, the way to build that business is, you know, really, you know, the shoe leather, pounding the streets, um, you know, going to conferences, picking up the phone, or increasingly these days using LinkedIn to find the appropriate marketing managers in those companies and obviously working with agencies as well. And, and so that's the way that we, in effect, attract new B2B clients to our business. And obviously, most of these B2B clients, what are they after? They're after consumers. So they leverage our B2C marketing experience to help yep. drive them more, uh, more traffic and ultimately more sales. And what, final question, mate. What has been the best campaign you've done so far? I think we've done... Uh, we've done quite a, a number of really interesting campaigns. I think one of the ones that we're certainly proud um, with is there's a, a new neo bank out of Europe. They're in about five, six countries called N26. Um, we've now been working with them. I think we're up to now our fifth campaign uh, with them. And that's obviously one of the ways that we judge whether or not we're doing well is mm. do, these, do these brands actually come back to us? And, and obviously, one of their core objectives is, A, build the brand and acquire them more customers. And, and I think we're going to start actually seeing this, you know, slightly digressing, but I think the, the rise of neobanks in Australia um, is going to be, I think, is a really important um, uh, opportunity for new customers out there. And we've already seen this in Europe over the last three or four years. Neobanks are, are really sort of taking the... Um, market share away from the big traditional players mm. and I can actually see the same thing happening here in Australia as well. So I'm actually very proud of the campaigns we've been running for a number of the neobanks uh, in uh, in the European marketplace and actually part of my uh, my trip here in Australia is I'm actually meeting up with a number of the upstart neobanks here in Australia mm. as well. Yep, I'm not surprised. Anyway, mate, uh, great to talk to you. Dominic Caruso, thanks for joining us in the program. CEO, I presume you're CEO, but you're definitely the founder. Yep of crowd media thanks for coming to the program mate fantastic thanks peter and now a word from our sponsors yes and i really want to inform you all about our strategy day for people who are looking for investment ideas um, sydney april 30 melbourne may 7 and brisbane may 30 the the subject uh, theme paul is investing in a politically challenging 2019 and it's always a a really well attended event isn't it paul it's probably my favorite day of the year is meeting some of our um subscribers and others uh, who come to our Investor Strategy Days. And I think, Peter, as you said, 
We've got a federal election due probably a week or two after those strategy days and uh, looking like we'll have a change of government, who knows, but look at lots of uh, policies that are going to affect the stock market and other investments. And yeah. We've still got President T out there so and, <laughs> and Brexit and everything else, so it's... Uh, yeah, politically challenged. That's uh, it's probably the understatement. Really. An understatement, I think. Yeah, and, and we've got some of the smartest people in the country who are looking for great investment ideas, and they'll be there sharing that with you. They'll they'll do a little bit of a lecture, but they'll also answer your questions as well. So that is Sydney, April thirty, Melbourne, May seven, Brisbane, May eight. Just go to switzerevents.com.au and click on book now if you want to turn up and have a great day learning a lot about investing. Okay, let's go to some questions straight away without mucking around. And the first one, if I can put my computer back onto its normal setting, comes from Will from Botany in New South Wales. He said, when I do salary sacrifice, does it reduce my Medicare levy in dollar terms? The answer it does, uh, and that's the normal levy that we all pay, the so-called 2%. So uh, effectively, you get the benefit of your tax rate and the Medicare levy. So, yep, you get a bit of a saving. Um, Look, if you have to pay additional surcharges, it's not because I think they had this back. But for most of us, if we're doing salary sacrifice, then we get the effectively the saving between company, our personal tax rate plus the Medicare levy versus the 15% tax on super. So if you're paying tax at, say, 45 cents in the dollar, add the Medicare levy of 2%, 47%, and you'll get effectively a 34% tax saving. Yeah. Sorry, 32% tax saving uh, from um, salary sacrifice. And that's a lot of people wouldn't realise that because you're you're only paying 15%. That's that's a very good question, Mm -hmm. um, Will. Well done. John from Southport, Queensland. Uh, if I lost, uh, if I've lost money on the stock market, can I take these losses and reduce my capital gains tax on, say, the sale of an investment property? I, I mean, he says, I, I hope I've stumbled on a good idea. No, look, sure can, and that's why it's so important. If you do have an investment that goes wrong, and we're going to have all going to, if we invest this in the share market, we're all occasionally going to lose money on yep. a stock. Or in that case, if you lost money on an investment property, yep, you can use uh, gains on one asset to be op- to op- offset with losses on another type of asset. So the only way, reason you can't are what are called personal use assets, They're things like uh, collectibles and a few other rules. But mm-hmm. in terms of most investable assets like uh, property and shares, we can offset uh, losses and gains. And I guess if those collectibles are inside a self-managed super fund, you probably could get use those losses. Yeah, look, there are just special rules. They're, oh, okay. they're essentially two different categories for capital gains tax, but uh, uh, assets like shares are in the same categories as yeah. property. Okay, and I think I'll just follow on the question because some people might be thinking this. What about, you know, can I deduct my losses off my normal um, income and, and reduce my tax paid there? Well, that's the bad news, Peter. Yeah. You can't, yeah. and so um, because... Uh, a, a capital loss can only be used to offset against a capital gain. Good point. Right. So if you have just other income and you make a loss, a capital loss, you get no benefit. But one day when you make that gain on an asset, um, you can offset the, the loss you had some years ago. So capital losses can be carried forward. You can carry forward them as long as you like. Hmm. But, of course, they become less valuable because of the time effect of money, you know, but uh, if you do have, lose some money on an asset, don't forget about it. Put it down, record it, carry it forward, and then when you have 
an asset like a share that you make some have to pay capital gains tax on, you can offset one against yep, the other. Absolutely. Now, my last one. This is Warren from Preston in Victoria. My son and I want to start investing in shares. We will invest about $20,000 and hopefully add about $2,000 a quarter. Any suggestions for me? Yeah, look, it's a really good question, and it's one, Peter, we see so often. Yep. And uh, because it is hard to get started, and it's actually – why you can just buy one share? That's for thrill seekers, right? Yes, that's and, right. Uh, look, if, if you knew, always knew the best stock, you wouldn't diversify. But most of us haven't, don't have that sort of track record, and we mm. find that diversification is a great strategy. So for $20,000, because of the transaction cost, you could probably only buy six or seven shares. Even that's probably too, too, not enough mm. to really get a diversified portfolio. So one option you could invest in something like, for example, Switz, which is a Switz Dividend Growth Fund, yep, yep. or you could invest in you Exchange 30, Trader Fund. You get yep, 30 stocks yep. there. Yeah. So you, effectively you get a manager to manage that money for you through a, a listed security. Or alternatively, um, you could go to brokers like Comsec and they have some ready-made share portfolios. They're called share packs. Yeah. They typically have five or six stocks uh, and they have different types of packs depending on whether, you know, whether you're after a lot of growth or more income or and something in between. So okay. look, look, and that's a cheap way to, way to do it because the, the brokerage is really low. Mm. So that's some share packs from Comsec. Or you could do what I say to a lot of people to get started with is um, look, think of five or six different companies from different industries that you know and have some understanding with and mm. and, and start to invest in those. And don't necessarily commit to putting $2,000 more in each month, but you might buy a different stock or you might say, look, I, I invest in one of the banks. They're doing really well. I like what they're doing. I think the management switched on. And I put my extra $2,000 as it comes in into yeah. one of those stocks. Yeah. That's- I know a guy who actually bought baby bunting mm-hmm. because he was young he just had kids and he said i'm spending so much money in this <laughs> store he said other young people he, he read that there was a bit of a baby boom going on that ended up being a pretty good investment for him so good idea also there's also the exchange traded funds where you might get 200 stocks more and that could be a, a good starting point as well all right so yeah and, and on a stock just like that i mean baby bunting probably applies to uh you know, someone in the younger demographic who's got kids, but if you're sick of paying toll roads, and anyone I guess in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane's yeah. in that category, well, they're pretty well all owned by Transurban. It's a listed company on the ASX, and um, if you don't like paying the tolls, well, buy the owner. That's right. <laughs> a great way of getting even. Now, Paul, just before we finish up, um, you did, and we talked about the upcoming election. Um, changing my investments ahead of Bill Shorten possibly becoming PM. Do you think that's a good idea? And if you do, what investments would you be changing? Look, I think that's a question that so many people have asked us, Peter, yeah. and you've written about that in today's uh, Switzer report. I, I caution against that for two reasons. First of all, that I think this whole, uh, particularly around the so-called retiree tax and the loss of of the refunding of in cash of excess franking credits, I think that debate's got a long way to go. A, he's got to get elected, which is probably going to happen. But B, he then has to legislate, and the chances are that that the ALP and the Greens won't control the Senate. They'll have to deal with a crossbench. The crossbench is going to look at this policy and say, hang on, this is impacting millions of people who didn't know what's coming. There's been so much noise. I think some sort of it'll be compromised in the in- inevitable, you know, Senate processes. So yeah. I think what you're looking at today, 
and what might be legislated could be very different things. So that's the first thing. And the other question is that this is not new news. I mean, remember this policy came out more than 12 months ago mm. and it's already in the price of some securities. And the question is, is it fully in the price? So markets tend to react in advance of things happening. It's what yeah. the call axiom of buy the rumour, sell the fact. In other words, markets position in advance of this. And one of the reasons, for example, why the banks last year were under pressure wasn't just the Royal Commission. This franking credit change was also, yeah. you know, over the top. People chased the banks. Lots of advisors were saying to, to, to self-managed mm-hmm. super fund trustees, reduce your holdings, and some did. Uh, Telstra was also impacted. We saw an impact in the so-called bank hybrid market because they pay frank dividends. We've seen... Um, you know, so-called listed investment companies, those trading at a premium being impacted. So I can't say today that, let's assume he gets elected and the change goes through as such, I can't say it's not already in the market price. It's Mm. just, I think you've just, there might be some impact, but I think some of it's already been felt. So I Mm. actually caution to perhaps just to... uh, to sit back and wait and see. And I, I'm not sure what rushing in now is uh, is the best course of action. Well, one of the points I made in my story today, Paul, in the Switzer Report was to say, well, if if this is a threat, and it clearly is to people who buy stocks for the franking credits and to try and build up the tax refund, a threat turned into an opportunity might be that they should start looking for a more diversified mm. portfolio of stocks you know, and also maybe look at some other assets like, for example, I, I remember, what was the name of the American uh, corporate bond? Ber- Berman? Uh, Bergman, um, yeah. There's a, what, Newman Berg. Yeah, there's a, it's an ASX-listed investment company that specialises in, in, yeah. in property, offshore property and yeah. bonds. And uh, That was a product I hadn't thought yeah. of before. And they do search around, I think, for about 300 well-known companies that have bonds and they kind of return 5 or 6%. So that was kind of the thing I think people should be thinking about. But in this report of ours and this podcast, we'll give some ideas as new products come along that look reasonably attractive and have reasonable returns. Yeah, look, I think searching, I think you might look at being more, try to be more diversified in, in new investments. The other thing I also think it's worth um, just reflecting upon is that most of the market are not impacted by this change. So I know we hear a lot of, uh, we always hear from a lot of people and there are a lot of self-funded retirees who are particularly impacted by the change. It doesn't have any impact on foreign investors who control about 30 or 40% of Australian stocks. Mm. It has no impact on most institutional investors. It has no impact on most corporate and and uh, uh, industry super funds. It has no impact on most personal investors who are paying tax over 30%. So, yeah. the, so the only people impacted, and they're a very significant group, but the only people impacted are, you know, largely zero-rate taxpayers, and that's self-managed super funds in, in pension mode. And as, as much as they're important, the market, it's the other groups that probably have more influence over market price. So, mm. you know, sure, it's a change. Has it, is it already in the price? Will it be legislated as such? And will it actually cause those at those prices of things like banks and Telstra to go down further. I'm not sure. That's why I say, look, and I've said all along, I wouldn't do anything. Yeah, okay. And by the way, the name of that company is Newberger Berman. I always get those names mixed up. Worth having a look at if you're looking for an alternative kind of, don't expose yourself too much, but it's not a bad idea to have a look at funds like that. Okay, Paul, that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to The Switcher Show, and we'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.